So here we are at the beginning of another new year, and I'm presented with the question as a pastor, well, what should we look at? And a couple of options that I mainly considered was we could do a short sermon series for a while at the beginning of the year and then finish up the book of John as we got into the season of Lent, or we could reverse that. We could just go ahead and pick up the book of John where we last left off and then do a different sermon series when we get into Lent. And I, I chose that option for what we wanted to do. And in many ways, I thought it appropriate. Because as we take the time to celebrate the coming of Christ, it is good to remember right away why he came. Because that's where we are in the book of John. We're at the part where, where we're going to see uh, the depths of his love as he goes closer and closer to that cross. So that's where we are. We're picking up the Gospel of John in the 18th chapter. And this morning we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of that chapter as we hear of the arrest of Jesus. In your pew Bibles, that's found on page 1074. Or as usual now, the words are on the screen and you can follow along there. Again, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken all these words, he went out with his disciples across the, book, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he, was, he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them, and when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text starts with those words. After Jesus had spoken these words, and it's a good reminder of where we've been in the book of John for the last little while. Basically, chapters 13 through 17 have been this long discord of Jesus. In uh, a red-letter Bible, it was almost completely covered in red, where Jesus is talking exclusively with his disciples. He's trying to encourage them to understand as best as they are able what's about to happen next. He talks about who he is and his relationship to the Father. He talks about the promised coming of the Holy Spirit that would guide them as they continued to pick up their mission, his mission and to do it in his absence. And he prays for them. And he prays for us. 
for our unity and for working together. And that is what we've been looking at for quite some time. But now it was time for the talking to stop and for the actions to start to take place. But from a preacher's perspective, it's a pretty radical shift in, in genre. For quite some time now, we've been hearing Jesus talk and the, the theological themes have been rich and deep and, and in many ways complicated and hard to fully understand and digest as Jesus prepares his disciples. And then all of a sudden we take this radical shift to just basically a description, uh, information about the actions that are taking place as Jesus leaves that place and, and goes out to the garden. And while it's important to understand the events that took place, I want to highlight the fact that John's intent in writing this gospel is not just to give us information. In fact, when we compare what we read in John to what the other gospels do and, and don't include, what we always need to remember is that each writer of the gospels is trying to select carefully the events to include in order to highlight certain themes, to not only stand, understand what was taking place, but to get an understanding of why all of this was taking place and what Jesus was doing. They are telling theological history, gospels, the good news about who Jesus is. And so as we approach this informative chapter that gives us details of the arrest of Jesus, we have to be asking some questions in this text. What stands out in the way that John tells this story? What surprises us about what takes place? What interests us? And in the details that are highlighted and, and that are drawn attention to, what do we learn about why these things are happening? Or in other words, we go all the way back to our original question of the book of John and why we've been studying it. Who is this Jesus that is being revealed in this text? But before we get too far of that and, and look at this story and this scene from this garden, I want to remind us of a scene from another garden. We are told that in the beginning, God created everything that existed. And on the last day of his creating work, he made male and female, Adam and Eve, as the crown of his creation, human beings that he wanted to have a relationship, to bless and to be known and worshipped by them, and to encourage and love them as his creatures. And he took those two human beings and he placed them in a garden. A place where all of their needs were provided for, where they could live and where they could thrive and where they could walk with God and know him intimately. And in that garden, we are told that both of them were naked, but were not ashamed. And that's because before sin had entered into the world, there was nothing of themselves that they had to be ashamed of. There was nothing about who they were or what they had done that they wanted to hide from anyone else or from God. They could be fully known by others and by their God. But not being satisfied with the one limit that God had placed on them when tempted they both ate of the tree in the midst of the garden that God had told them not to eat from. And then what happened? Well, in sinning, all of a sudden there was shame. 
at what they had done. Now there's something that they do want to hide. There are parts of who they are and what they have done that they don't want other people to know about or to see about them. And so they cover themselves. And now when they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden and instead of going to him and interacting with him, they run from him and they try to hide And even though they run, God pursues them and he asks, where are you? But in answering that question, they continue to try to hide in their sin by playing the blame game. It was the woman that you put in the garden. It was the serpent who you put here. And I always am reminded and in awe of the fact that that little scene is so foundational to our current relationship with God and to sin. Because how often when we are confronted in our sin, when we have to deal with the consequences of our rebellion against God, how often don't we respond in the exact same way? We try to hide. We try to run away from God and pretend like he didn't see or or doesn't know what was going on. We we play the blame game. God, it wasn't me. It's your fault. It, it It was my parents and the way that they raised me. It was the desires that you gave me. It was the circumstances that I found myself in. It was the devil's fault. And we try to hide from our sin. And in our fear of the God that we have rebelled against, we try to run away from him. Instead of walking with God, we fear him. And in all of that running, hiding, and excuse making, God continues to pursue. And in his grace and in his love, he says, where are you? I want to know you. Come back to me. So now we turn our attention back to John 18. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he had just finished praying for his disciples, praying for unity in their purpose, praying that they would know of the depth of a possible relationship with God that Jesus had known and lived with. And then, after that, in this garden... He looks up and there are people coming for him. And who's coming after him? Well, we first identify Judas in verse, uh, what was that? Verse number three. And that detail is a detail that stings. Because Judas was one of those privileged individuals, a person called and invited to be a disciple of Jesus who for three and a half years had had a front row seat to see the miracles, to hear the teaching. He knew the heart of his master and rabbi Jesus. And yet he betrayed him. And he used his knowledge of who Jesus was and his typical practices to lead a group of people to know exactly where he could be found. And the group of people, we are told in verse 3, it continues, that he brought with him a, a band of soldiers. 
These would have been the members of, of the Roman army, uh, representatives of the emperor, probably elevating their presence in Jerusalem during this festival time to make sure that the peace was kept. And while we just read a, a band of soldiers from the commentaries that I read, they suggest that this was actually a technical term and, and it was probably several hundred armed troops brought to this garden in order to capture Jesus. And with them also comes some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. These would have been members of the temple guard. They would be the ones who were the religious authorities tasked with keeping the peace within the boundaries of the temple where the Roman officers would not go. And they were there on behalf of those groups of people that had often conflicted with Jesus who struggled most to recognize him for the person that he was, and who long ago had decided that they had to find a way to get rid of him. And this was their moment. And so they come, and they come bringing with them lanterns and torches and weapons. They are geared up for a fight. This is going to end, and it is going to end now. But this is where we start to be surprised by the details. And we start to see the kinds of things that John emphasizes in the telling of the events. When he says in verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? First of all, don't miss that comment. Knowing all that would happen to him. He knew. He knew that they were there to arrest him. He knew that in being arrested by them, they were going to take him and they were going to mercilessly beat him. He knew that the consequences of their kangaroo court was going to be that he would end up on a cross where he would be killed. He knew exactly that that was where he was going. He knew it all. He had all of the motivation in the world to be afraid and to run and to try to hide. But when they came, instead of running, instead of hiding, instead of fleeing and starting to war with the soldiers and the guard, the, exactly as they were apparently prepared to do, Jesus goes to them. And he asked them, who do you seek? Who are you looking for? And when they say, Jesus of Nazareth, he replies, I am he. Which, once again, is a perfectly good translation for the words, but we lose something in the English that would be apparent in the Greek. Once again, when Jesus says, I am he, he is using that Greek term, ego I me. Which is the statement more literally translated, I am. The very same way that he had started all of those things that he'd been revealing about himself throughout this book. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am the bread of life. All of those had started with that phrase, ego, I, me. But not only that, it was also the same Greek words that, Jesus, that God had spoken to Moses when Moses had been confronted by that fiery bush. And he asked, who shall I say sent me? 
And in Greek, it was, tell them, ego I me, I am has sent you. Once again, we have to recognize that these are powerful words from Jesus. And to these powerful words, there is a powerful reaction. We are told that the guards fall back and they fall to the ground. And I agree with the commentator that suggests that it wasn't their shock or their surprise in the words that Jesus spoke, but it was a powerful reaction to the power that stood behind those words that caused them to just inadvertently fall over. And so they have to repeat the whole process. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. But this time, Jesus adds to that a desire to protect his disciples. He says, well, if I am the one that you are looking for, if it's just me that you've come to get, then come and get me. Don't touch these other men, these other men that are with me. Let them go. And this is fulfilling his words, we are told, that he would lose none of those that God had given to him. Jesus would be faithful to his word and he would lose none of them and it reveals more of Jesus' heart and his mission. But it's a heart and it's a mission that at least one of his disciples doesn't share. And we are told that Peter has a sword with him and he takes it out and he uses it. Now, the text says nothing about motivation or why he did this. Uh, and while the other Gospels mention this very same occurrence happening, it's only John that identifies the disciple as Peter. And knowing that it's Peter, we can guess at much of his motivation. It's likely that this is just part of his reactive character that we see over and over again in the Gospels. Or maybe this is his desire to protect Jesus, to not allow Jesus to die on his own, but to die with him as he said he had wanted to do when they were in that upper room together. Whatever his motivation might have been, in drawing his sword, he cuts off the ear of Malchus, another detail that only John gives in identifying the name of this person. And what's interesting too is, again, I'm not sure if this is a technical word that is used for sword, but every commentary agrees that this wasn't a, a slicing sword. This was probably a short dagger mostly used for stabbing. And so when Peter cuts off this servant's ear, he probably wasn't aiming for his ear. He was probably trying to, to kill him in this stab. It's about an opportunity that the soldiers were looking for where this whole thing could immediately go south. Where this is the fight that they had expected. They've got their troops ready. They've got their weapons at their side. This whole thing could go completely wrong at this moment. But who takes control once again? It's Jesus. Right away, he rebukes Peter, and he tells him to put his sword away. And while John doesn't include the detail, Luke tells us that he actually heals the man's ear right away. But his main reply is to ask, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And in a kind of a weird way, in asking that question, Jesus is answering the whole issue of this text and really explaining what is going on. It's shocking that he doesn't run. 
It's shocking that instead he takes control of the situation and he surrenders. And as much as it was the betrayer, the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders that were there coming after Jesus, he recognizes that in truth they're actually doing God's work. Over the last several days and weeks, as we've sung song praising the arrival of a Savior that had come, and that a child had been born to us that would take away the sins of the world, this is the beginning of our glimpse of what that all meant and where that was all headed from the very beginning and what being the Savior was all about. The Father had sent Jesus on a mission. The Father had assigned to him to drink this cup. And when we think about and look and unpack what it means that this cup that is being talked about in the Old Testament, the cup is often referred to as the cup of God's judgment. God's anger against the sin of all humanity. It needed to be poured out and dealt with. And for Jesus, drinking that cup would mean betrayal. For Jesus, meat, drinking that cup would mean being arrested and being killed. And by drinking that cup for you and I, that means that God's wrath is going to be satisfied in Jesus instead of us. And our sins will be forgiven. And so because this was the cup that the Father had given him to drink, as he always did, Jesus wasn't going to run. He would not hide. He would not flee or blame others in order to try to escape the hurt and the pain. Instead, the way that John tells the story, it is clear that he is not being a victim, but he took control. He surrendered. And as Isaiah had prophesied so long ago, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Who is this Jesus? He's a willing sacrifice. Jesus is giving himself in obedience to the Father, to the will of the Father, so that we can be forgiven. He was the one that as God could offer that as God could offer the perfect sacrifice and as an innocent human could stand in our place to represent us on the cross. And what does that do for us? Well, it, it should increase the shame of our sins. A question that is brought up in this text and will continue throughout is, is who's to blame for Jesus ending up on the cross? Is it Judas as a betrayer? Is it the Roman authority? Is it the Jewish leadership? And the answer to that question really will come down to all of them and none of them. Because in the end, I am the one to blame. And this story should increase my, my shame at my sin. And the realization of the consequences of when I disobey God. This is what that leads to. And in leading that, it, it should also cause me to hate my sin. But more importantly, to appreciate on the positive side, the depth of the love that Jesus had for me. Hebrews 12 says that it was but for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. 
Hebrews 12 also goes on that says that as we witness Jesus, this should motivate us in our response to him. That it should call us then to serve him, to love him all the more. Knowing what he was willing to go through for me should inspire me to be willing to do anything in order to serve and bless him. Because in the end, when it comes to sin, there really are only two choices. The first choice is that we could recognize that we have offended God and our reaction to that would be to fear God. And in being afraid of him, to run away from him, to try to hide our sin, to bury it in lies, to bury it in blame, to cover it over and say, I'm not guilty, you don't know about what I did. But if that's the path that we choose, in the end, we will be responsible for drinking the cup of God's wrath and judgment against that sin and bearing the consequences. But thanks be to Jesus that there is another option. And instead of running from God, we can run to God. And we can recognize that because Jesus was that willing sacrifice who stepped forward and drank that cup on our behalf, we can confess our sins, admit that we've messed up and we violated his commands and receive from God not wrath, but forgiveness and grace and love. A God that says, where are you? I want to know you. I still want that relationship with you. And in, in, in accepting Christ and his grace, we can know life and freedom. As we witness the events of this, we see that Jesus, instead of running from his call, walked toward it. Which is an invitation to us to walk toward the God of grace and receive his mercy. And especially as we start this new year together and we witness what Christ has done for us. May that be all the motivation in the world to put our sins behind us. And to walk with that God that wants to walk with you. Receive his grace. The grace of that willing sacrifice. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we sit before you as runners and hiders and blamers who often seek to minimize our sin and our rebellion, who look for ways to excuse why we've done the things that we ought not to have done. But you are not a runner. You are a God who knew why you were here and you gave yourself for us. And as we continue and begin in this part of John again to marvel at your sacrifice, may it strike us anew. May it cause us to hate our sin all the more and to realize the depth of the consequences and effects of our sin. But more importantly, may it cause us to love you more deeply, to know the God of grace that you are, why you came to this earth. And may it call us to live for you in all that we are and all that we can do. We can't do this on our own. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would guide us through your spirit. That you would motivate us through your word. And that you would draw us into a deeper walk with you as we serve you, the great God who offered himself on our behalf. And it is in Jesus' name we pray this all. Amen.